This morning, as we uh, continue in our series, we're talking about baptism. And uh, for those of you who have been baptized, I've been challenging you and will continue to challenge you to remember your baptism. If you've never been baptized, it's a time to begin thinking about and, uh, and, and considering this practice, which is rooted in the very earliest days of the Christian tradition and even before that. So it is a big piece of who we are as people. And Colossians is especially significant for this, uh, for this, this, this issue, for baptism this morning. Uh, Colossians 2 is where we will be. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. You can look that up in your Bibles if you want to follow along. I was discontent with the translations that are uh, available to us. This is the Bible we normally use. I didn't really like it. And so I'm, you're going to kind of, I'm going to give you my own, this is the Jordan Standard Version. All right, so... Um, so it's slightly different, but it'll be a slightly different because I want to highlight some things that kind of aren't apparent in English. So this might be a little bit more of a heady sermon than, uh, than excitement and jumping around um, because I do that all the time. Let's do this. All right, here is the text. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin with verses 8 through, where do you go, 10. Uh, but the whole section we'll be looking at today will be verses 8 through 15. Um, here, uh, Paul has written a letter. This is one of his later letters, and so it's one that is very deep and theological. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this text and in this letter as a whole, but he is writing to Christians, trying to help them to preserve their faith underneath Roman occupation in a Roman society. How are you functioning like a Christian in a Roman society? So he's, he's working with them on this issue, and he says here, beginning with verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies and empty lies according to human tradition, according to the stoichia of the cosmos and against Christ. For in him all the fullness of divinity dwells in human form. And in him you are being completed, who is the head of every position of rule and authority. That's a lot. Um, and in fact, we don't even have anything about baptism yet, but the next few verses will make it clear. We are front-loading this so that we can begin thinking about and preparing for what he is going to expose to us about the purpose, meaning, a dimension, one of the many dimensions of baptism and its power over here. But really, this is a question here immediately, a question of authority, and we don't think about that much with baptism. We don't think about that a lot in our lives. Uh, the kind of um, uh, American mantra has a lot to do with freedom and individualism and kind of my ability to, to kind of do my own thing. And so we often don't re- recognize the authorities that are over us. But we, of course, have mountains of governmental authorities and other authorities and different jobs and positions like that. But also there is a, a, an authority that Satan himself holds over the powers of the world. And so all the way down, we're kind of under an authority always, be it the authority of the world or be it the authority of Christ. And here you see those things starkly laid out. This is why we do the practices, why Jesus said, for instance, in the last words of Matthew 28, he calls us to go forth into the world and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or some of the songs that we even sing. We sing songs about praising the name of the Lord our God or oh, worship the name of the Lord our God, which is, if you're not a Christian here today, you have to think that's the most bizarre thing to sing, right? Like, worship a name. What, what does that even mean? Well, a name confers authority. 
of any of you who have jobs where you have kind of a middle manager over top of you, right, who's breathing down your neck maybe even a little bit unpleasantly, that person in and of themselves don't have a lot of authority, but the authority that they have from the boss above them allows them to make your life miserable. Am I speaking to anybody? (laughs) Don't say amen. They record this. So we understand that there's always kind of an authority over us. And what Paul is asking here is he's saying, listen, you are in danger because you live in a society where there are all of these layers of authority. You're in danger of losing sight of whose you are. So be careful and don't let somebody sneak in and deceive you through a philosophy. That's the first thing that we notice that he says. This is a few other things. We'll get them up here. Philosophy, which is just a way of saying the things that sort of are built into our brains, the background programming that tells us what is right or wrong, that leads us in asking questions about meaning, what should I do, what should I not do, what has meaning in my life or doesn't have meaning in life. We all have philosophy, even if you've never read Nietzsche or Aristotle or Socrates or any other you know, famous philosopher, a philosophy drives you, be it a Christian one or not, it drives you. And on top of our philosophies are our traditions, the human traditions that we build in conjunction with that. Because while philosophy determines meaning and thought and purpose and ethics and all of those kinds of things, traditions become the ingrained patterns of our ways of living in light of the philosophies we have accepted. And most of us have never put a lot of critical time and thought into what sits underneath our purpose in life what we believe, why we believe it. But these things build on top of each other. So you have the philosophies, then you have the traditions, and then he uses this bizarre word right here. And I didn't translate it. This is just the Greek word, which is why your Bibles won't read that way, won't read stoikia, although it is kind of fun to say. Most Bibles will translate this word here as something like elemental properties or elementary principles. It's a complicated word. It's a really big word, which is why I wanted to kind of leave it and talk about it for a minute. Because at its most core, it means something like to walk in a particular direction. Right toward that silence button. Walking in a particular direction, right? Um, But that then expands out a little bit more and begins to include the elementary principles or properties of the world themselves. So they would think of like earth, air, fire, and water. You might think of the periodical table of, of elements. We have these different ways of just existence in the world. We have material. Those things are included in stoichia. So it's walking a particular direction. It's sort of the things that make up the world materially, but they also includes the things that make up the world that we don't see. The spiritual dimension. And as you might have guessed, with the Bible, everything is both physical and spiritual, right? All these things are interwoven and connected together. So when we are talking, or when the Bible is talking about stoichia, especially in this text here that we have, where we are told, here, let me pull it back up here, according to, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies, uh, traditions, but These are all according to the stoichia, the way of being in the world. The way of being in the world at this time or in the cosmos of this time. And it is fundamentally set up what? Against Christ. That the way that most people move and live and exist in the world is just fundamentally in rebellion against what God is calling us to do. Which is why it's so hard to be a Christian. Can I get a witness? 
right? Like, it's really hard. How many of you guys are working hard at this? Like, I know you. I see you. You're striving. You're volunteering. You're, you're asking questions. You're trying to read your... It's hard to be a Christian. And what explains that hardness? What explains that hardness is that you live in a world that is just constantly, fundamentally moving against God. And so if you're standing there, it's like sometimes you just feel like you're just getting washed over by a river of filth. Anyone ever feel that way? Just getting run over by this thing. You're like, I'm just trying to move forward a little bit in this great stream, the stoichia of the world. And so there's this constant against the currentness that we're being called to, while at the same time we observe from everything around us, be it political or cultural or anything like that, moving against us as we move against it. And so Paul warns them. He says, listen, there's a way of being in the world. And if you find yourself moving with the world very comfortably, that's the first warning bell. Wee, 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 right? You're going the wrong direction. You are not, as Carrie Funk says, on fleek. And so there's an implicit just juxtaposition that is happening here. And Paul is going to move on and begin to explain it a little bit more. He gets into it here in verses 11 through 12. So follow along as you like. In him you were circumcised with circumcision not made with hands and the removal of just skin from the body, which is what circumcision is, right? Ask your parents, kids. But rather in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried in baptism in which you were also raised up right, or resurrected through your allegiance to the power of God who raised him, resurrected him from the dead. Now there are a few things I want you to notice about this text and I sort of tried to draw forward this kind of instance, this problem here of living with the philosophies or the traditions according to the stoichia of the world, especially as it is, is presented with rulers and authorities over us who are constantly trying to get us to acclimate and to assimilate their way of life. Now those rulers and authorities could be... Uh, influencers on YouTube about your makeup and what you should wear. It could be a politician who tells you who to hate or who to love. It could be anything, anything at all, but they are calling you to live according to their principles, right? That's what's happening, happening here in this text. And Paul says something completely different. In fact, uh, he, he draws this forward earlier, and I think I have a slide for it. Yes, this is from uh, Colossians chapter, um, that is not. That's not it at all. I didn't make a slide. Paul says this earlier in Colossians 1. He says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a transference that is happening where we are no longer living to the stoichia of the world, but now we are moving toward Christ. That he has circumcised us, not with his hands, as it were, but rather within us in some real way. Now here is a text that is quite troubling, and this, and I just got to hover over here for a second, because part of the problem here is that if you know when circumcision happens, when is it, does anybody remember when it was supposed to happen? Eighth day, right? So you have a baby, and eighth day later, eight days later, you circumcise uh, the baby. So it happens when you're an infant, and through that circumcision, that infant now is identified with the Jewish people. That was the physical outside marker, right? Therefore, that's how it's... Now, Paul has just compared baptism to circumcision, which happens again when you're what? 
an infant, right? Circumcision happens when you're an infant. So it's not a long leap to say, when should we start baptizing people when they're an infant, right? You, you see how that, that logic is, is drawn forward, right? That's part of the argumentation about why other churches will, will baptize infants, especially if you think about the early days of Christian history, you know, A.D. 1 to 200 or whatever, the infant mortality rate was high, And you are loving your children, and you're scared for your children, and so you want your children to be included into the body of Christ because they might die at two with a simple fever. You get that? You follow that? So it makes a lot of sense then that early on within, you know, maybe about two two to three hundred, we begin to see infant baptism taking over. But you can recognize through this text that this is not what Paul is talking about, is it? Because fundamentally what Paul is asking is, have you stood up and said, Jesus Christ is Lord? I've never seen a baby do that. I've seen babies make lots of noises, right? But they don't have the capacity for that. And even if you could talk some little child into it, maybe at two or three, they don't really conceive, they can't conceive of what's happening in them, right? They can't conceive of this kind of thing. So what's happening here is something much more deep. God is calling forth our allegiance to him through baptism in which we then are identified with the people of God and we are raised like Jesus from the dead. I mean, that's, that's why we chose, that's why baptism was chosen by God through John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles and the traditions of the early church, right? This is what's chosen. This is why it's chosen, because it is the best way to participate in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only other way for us to do that is for us to kill you and bury you out back, right? That's not great. That's not going to work, right? So we have to find some other way to identify, to participate with the story of Jesus. And so the scripture said, it's not enough. We don't just want you to raise your hand and say, I believe, but rather we want you to feel it. We want you to embody it. We want you to be buried in it. We want you to participate in what Jesus participated in so that when you come up out of that watery grave, it is like you too have been resurrected. You too have been raised to a new kind of life. And now everything is new. Everything has been changed. That's what Paul is driving at here. Paul says something very similar to this in Romans uh, chapter 6. But all of this is simply to say that through baptism, we are identifying ourselves as as the people who belong to the kingdom of Christ. And thus we are declaring that the victories of Christ are now our victories. Does that make sense? Jesus was not victorious on the cross. He was victorious after the cross, after his burial, and after his resurrection. Right? There isn't victory until the whole story is told. And the same is true of us. The whole victory isn't told until we are buried in the waters of baptism and lifted up again to a newness of life. So what are those victories? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 12. That's a blank slide. Verse 12. That's verse 13. That's what I wanted. Nope, it wasn't. There's 12. There it is. Back here. So, notice this verse. When you were buried in baptism, in which also you were raised up through the allegiance to the power of God who raised him from the dead. Notice that the first enemy that Jesus defeats in this text is death. That death is this thing that breathes down our neck, and Jesus has defeated it. 
He defeated it when he came up out of that tomb. And so you can imagine how easily the transference is that we defeat it as well as we come up out of the water. Paul says to his friend Timothy, he says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That a huge piece about the gospel is we have defeated death because we are in Christ Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news. That's good news. Okay, I mean, I think some of you guys are pretty thrilled about death. I don't know. This is bizarre. The defeat of death is amazing. The fact that there's a gift of eternal life, the fact that we don't have to cower in fear. There, In fact, there's a point where Paul is talking about death and its power over us and resurrection and it freeing us. And he says at one point, it's kind of, it just feels like an explosion of joy at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Oh, death, where is your power? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, because he has given us victory through Jesus Christ. That's good news, right? Paul also says, moving on to 13, it's not just death. He says, for you are dying in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which you with him are made alive as he graciously forgives all your trespasses, erasing the decrees of your debts which were against you. He lifted them up out of your midst, nailing them to the cross. And most translations that you have actually are pretty different here, especially um, in this uh, place. That, boy, I am everywhere, guys. I'm sorry. Death, sin. Here we go. Take a deep breath. It's been a crazy couple of weeks. My goodness. Okay, you were dying in the <laughs> trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but you with him are made alive, graciously forgiving all your trespasses, erasing the decrees of your debts which were against you. He lifted them out of the midst of you, nailing them to the cross. This is the piece right here that is usually translated differently. It usually says something like legal debt or legal decree. It turns it into a law piece, but that actually kind of misses the point. Because while in our, in our country, our context and the way that we experience life. People are always asking, how many times have you heard this week? That's not constitutional, right? I mean, goodness sakes, I've heard that like 20 times. Every time you turn on the news, somebody's arguing about if it's constitutional or not. Because there's this undergirding law piece that everyone has this access back to. So illegal for us is like you broke the law, and so you need to be dealt with. This is not the same world that they live in. They live in an imperial world, right? So there is a, an emperor, and the emperor has all of these other lords and ladies, let's just put it that way, all the way underneath, and you as an individual sit underneath all of that stoichia, all of that rule and authority, and underneath that thing, if for some reason you are not loyal to your lord, the decree of that debt must go up, and it goes up in the town square. Now, this could be a debt in terms of taxes. This could be a debt in terms of loyalty. It could be a debt of any kind. If you have offended the honor of the Lord, then you are going to be punished. You might remember this is what happened to Jesus, isn't it? Do you remember this? They nailed him on the cross, but that wasn't it. What else did they do to the cross? They put a piece of paper on it. What was on the paper? King of the Jews, right? 
This was, not, this was not a nameplate. They weren't trying to display the king of the Jews. They were displaying what happens if you walk around saying you're the king of the Jews, right? In other words, Jesus failed his test of loyalty to Rome. In fact, this is exactly what the people around the Sanhedrin and the, and the Pharisees, as they're trying to talk Pilate into executing Jesus, they, you remember uh, Pilate says, well, you want me to execute your king? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I thought this was the guy you're all following. And they say what? We have no king but Caesar. What is that? An oath of loyalty and allegiance. And so what is this saying here? This is saying there was a place in which you owe God your allegiance. You were made by his hands. You are made not only by his hands as just a creature, but you are made in his image. How much more do we owe God in terms of loyalty and allegiance and faithfulness? But in all of our lives, whether we're talking about instances where we did what was wrong or we refused to do what was right or we just stayed silent or we acted immorally, in all of these ways, God could stand out in the middle of the square just thinking of my own life and I just don't know how many walls he would need to build to tack up all of the decrees of my debt. Anybody else? But instead of God nailing the decrees of my debt in the town square to hold me accountable so that when his judgment came, his judgment upon me is harsh and firm but fair and true. Instead of nailing them into the town square, he nailed them to the cross and he removed them so that not only is death no longer the great enemy, but now my own decrees of debt my own trespasses, my own sin, my own moral failures, whatever you want to include in that great big bundle. It's been nailed to the cross. God has taken this thing that we all had. Here's the great mass of those who have been made in his image. There's this mass of sin, and God has taken it. He's lifted it up, and he's given it to Jesus. And Jesus, like the great atonement goat, carried it out, carried it out, into the wilderness. So we have been set free. In fact, this is exactly what happened to Paul as Paul was wallowing sort of in his own, in his pain. Remember, the, the Lord comes to him and blinds him. And Paul, who wrote this beautiful letter, wrote these beautiful words, at one point was an enemy of Christ, killing as many Christians or imprisoning them as he could. Paul, who is struck blind by Jesus, as you can imagine, after three days of fasting and weeping, being blind and asking God, what do I do? Uh, this, this, um, uh, this uh, messenger from God, Ananias, comes in and he says to Paul, he says, what are you waiting for? Get up. Stop wallowing. Stop being sad. Get up. Be baptized. And wash your sins away, calling on his name. Stop wallowing and be free. And this is one of the important pieces of remembering our baptism when it comes to sin. Yes, our sins were forgiven back then, but that has ongoing effects. That every time we as Christians step back into sin, we are resubmitting ourselves to the slavery that baptism freed us for, freed us from those many years ago. Why would you submit yourself back to the stoichia, back to the ways of the world, back to the sin that's in the world, back to death? Why would you put yourself back into slavery? That's insane. No one does that. And so we can't walk in those ways anymore. Paul is trying to plead with these Christians to see their freedom. To see their freedom. 
And the last uh, piece that we have in this text that refers to baptism and the things that frees us from it. It frees us from death. It frees, them, frees us from sin. But it also frees us from rulers and authorities. Notice what it says here. How Paul says this. And this is another place that will be slightly different than your Bibles. I translated it, he stripped naked the rulers and authorities, disgracing them in boldness, triumphing over them in him. Most of your Bibles will say something like he disarmed them, right? Which is to say you have somebody who's got a sword perhaps and they remove the sword. But this, uh, this word that appears right here, disarmed or stripped naked depending on how you translate it, actually appears a little bit later in Colossians. Colossians 3, did I give it? I did not. In Colossians 3, Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. That's the same word. You put something off. In other words, what has happened? How many of you guys remember the story of, uh, of uh, the emperor's new clothes. Remember that story? Can we tell it? What do, how does it go? We start off with an emperor, right, who wants a fancy pair of clothes. And so he gets all lots of fancy clothes, and then some real clever dude comes in and says, I can make clothes that are so fancy that only the fanciest people can even see them. And he says, well, that's pretty fancy. I don't know of anything fancier than that. And so what does the person do? You remember the story? Yeah. Making clothes. I don't even know what he looked like. I don't know. However it goes, making clothes that are invisible. And then he comes in and he robes the king with it, robes the emperor with it. But the emperor is naked, isn't he? He's wearing these things and he's walking around so proud in his fancy clothes. And what is everybody else doing? Well, not to his face. They're not laughing. They value their heads. Well, they're like, oh, you look magnificent. That's wonderful. Tremendous. Like nothing I've ever seen before. Literally, nothing I've ever seen before, right? I mean, it is such a funny story. And what is it? It is a political cartoon, isn't it? It's saying that there is a point in which everyone else can give you all of that accolades. You know, everybody wants to stand up to the power, but the power itself is actually naked and disgrace. And the same thing is happening here. What has Jesus done? He has taken those rulers like Pilate, like the Pharisees, like death, like Satan himself. Like the sin that we, when we, when we grab our own lives and we say, you know what, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want with it. I don't care what God says. I don't care what you say. Only God can judge me, which is kind of a way of saying no one can judge me. Right? It's my life. That, that's another example of rule. All of those rulers and authorities, he has stripped them naked and exposed them to their disgrace. They actually don't have power over you unless you allow them to have power over you. Unless you allow them to capture you by the philosophies and the traditions and the stoichia of living in this world, unless you turn your back towards right, the current and you begin to move with everyone else. But what Paul is saying is, no, that river is actually a lie. And if you capture that lie, if you see how vapid all of those authorities are, be they YouTubers in their makeup, be they politicians and telling you who to hate or love or whatever, all of those different things are exposed in light. Why? Because Jesus is the ruler over all of those things. Why would you submit yourself back to those things? We read in the very first verse, in Jesus, all divinity dwells in human form. What greater authority could you appeal to than that? And you have his ear. When you pray, he listens. In fact, he has empowered you by his spirit, filled you with his spirit, so that when you pray, his own spirit takes your prayers to him. I mean, it's incredible. 
God's desire to free us for himself and for himself only. And so he lays waste to all of our enemies. He lays waste to sin. He lays waste to death. He lays waste to those authorities who would lay claim on your life and ask for your allegiance and power and attention and whatever else so that we can truly be free. To quote um, probably one of the greatest theologians of this age, Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else is bullcrap. That's it. So in short, we can say with complete biblical consistency that baptism is the believer's first step towards God. In a a perfect world, you kind of have this, and the Bible is in many ways the perfect world as it describes conversions. It has these conversion moments where, where everything is radically transformed in someone's life, and now they live according to a new and living way. That they refuse now to live according to those traditions or philosophies or stoichia. And as Christians here, remembering our baptism... We have to ask the question, how have we fallen into those traps? How have we allowed the different elements of the world to just kind of glaze our eyes and call us home to them, toward them, to deceive us and to draw us toward them? And in what ways do we need to break from those old ways of life and to remember again walking in the newness that God himself gave us in baptism? If you aren't a Christian here today, you have not been freed. And part of the whole work of all of the gospel, all of Jesus himself and the apostles and the church for thousands of years has been this, a call and plea to freedom. You can be free. Guilt and shame can be washed away. Fear of death can be washed away. Sin and the brokenness that keeps on kind of like sinking its way into your life and degrading your relationships and your marriages and your jobs and your kids and your families and all these things that are building up and corrupting and bringing you down. All of that can be left as well. Everything can be laid aside and you too can experience the fullness of freedom in God. That's what baptism is. And we still have like three more weeks to go. I'm excited. This is a pretty cool thing. God is so good to us. If you have a decision to make today, I will be down front. If you have a decision that you want to make kind of a little more privately, our elders will be back there after the service. And they would love to meet with you and to pray with you if this is a step that you need to take. Uh, But whatever your step is, my plea to you is to be free today. So whatever step it is that you need to take to get into the freedom of God, take that step. Let's stand as we sing praise to our God and Savior.